Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Why? Why are you like this, Romeo? Why? listening to Shakespeare's Shadows, the podcast that delves into a single Shakespeare character in each episode, weaving together interviews with actors and academics. I'm Emily Rome, creator of Shakespeare's Shadows. Thanks for tuning in to this fifth episode of the second season of the podcast. This episode is all about one character in what is perhaps the world's best-known love story. Romeo, one half of the star-crossed lovers in the tragedy Romeo and Juliet. And yes, we'll be getting into all the whys and wherefores of what makes this character tick. Before we really start digging into the character of Romeo, I wanted to mention that if you're interested in this play, Romeo and Juliet, and if you're new to Shakespeare's Shadows, I hope you'll also check out the podcast season two premiere, which was all about Juliet, and the episode from season one that was all about Mercutio. The actor guest on this episode is Bally Gill, who played Romeo at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2018. You may have seen him in films like Alleluia, where he shared the screen with Dame Judi Dench, and his TV credits now include the upcoming second season of AMC series Interview with the Vampire. For his performance as Romeo at the RSC, Bally won the prestigious Ian Charleston Award, which honors the best classical stage performances in the UK by actors under age 30. Yeah, very happy to have you aboard the podcast and reflecting back on nearly five years ago now, you played Romeo, right? Yeah, when you say it like that, it feels like a long time ago. But for me, it doesn't feel that sort of long ago. But I think it's just because we've had pandemics and lockdowns and and stuff like that. And and then coming back to it now, it's it's nice, though, when people ask me about it, because it feels like a different lifetime ago. It feels like a different life. Yeah, I love reflecting back on it because it was an it was an incredible, incredible, amazing part of my life. Bally's interview was the first interview I did when starting prep to relaunch the podcast a little over a year ago in November 2022. And now he's back at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in their current production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, playing Oberon and Theseus. Bally recalled auditioning for the part of Romeo. He told me that at first he thought they were considering him to understudy the role. I was auditioning, did the first round of auditions. And I just said to Erica Wyman, who, who was auditioning me, I said, oh, so who have you got thinking of playing the actual role? And they were like, well, you. We've got, <laughs> we're thinking of you to do it. And I, go, I went, oh, so that was for the main, like the actual thing. He was, she was like, yeah, yeah, that was for that. I was like, oh, okay. So then we do two more rounds of auditions. I get nervous, even more nervous now. Yeah. Um, but it's the only, I'll be honest with you, it's the only Shakespeare play character I've, picked up and just know I knew how to do it the voice mm. I knew it was my friends it's me it was me at school it, it I, I all of the, the way I did it was and the version that I ended up coming to was my friends like I just took the sources of you know I lived in Coventry which is around the corner from Stratford-upon-Avon probably about 25 mm-hmm. minutes in the car right and that version the one that we did was just sort of inspired by me and my friends growing up and like liking girls and trying to like impress them and not really and failing massively at doing that so I think (laughs) I think I we took loads of sort of influences from that and it has only just been that Shakespeare actually that I picked up and just knew instantly I was like I know that voice I know how to do it I know how what this these feelings are I know so yeah that's what really kind of drew me to wanting to do it and then wanting to do it at the RSE was just I mean it was it was literally the opportunity came and I was like yes yes I will do that yeah (laughs) yeah not something you're gonna say no to (laughs) yeah (laughs) the academic guest on this episode is Dr. Courtney Lehman she's a professor of English and film studies at University of the Pacific in Stockton California among her publications is a book all about screen adaptations of Romeo and Juliet As I often do in these interviews for the podcast, I started by asking Courtney how college students respond to Romeo and Juliet in the classroom. To be honest, I don't teach Romeo and Juliet as often Uh, as I should, because the first thing the students do is roll their eyes. I think we know mm. this story. We know how it ends. And the thing about Romeo and Juliet is that there is this incredible urgency about it. Uh, it's compressed into five days. And somehow Shakespeare 
magically makes us believe that two young people within 24 hours of knowing each other marry and then within four days, each thinking the other is dead, they take their lives. This is an incredible love story. How do you make students, for example, believe that this is even possible? Yeah. And what's interesting is that because there were so many versions of Romeo and Juliet going back 800 years or so, what you have to do is create that sense of urgency for the students. Because the problem with Romeo and Juliet is that it is always already known. And yet Shakespeare's version of Romeo and Juliet is the one that stuck. That's the one that created the phenomenon of star-crossed love. And I think that is a revolutionary element of his play. The idea that falling in love but being star-crossed in love can actually lead to revolutionary changes in society. Because Romeo and Juliet, one of the things that the students are interested in once they stop rolling their eyes, what gets them fired up is the fact that, first of all, only the poor could marry for love. And so Romeo and Juliet, being both from noble households, defy all of those social expectations in eloping with each other. Juliet is really more of a badass than Romeo. Mm -hmm. Um, She (laughs) defies her father's right to give her away. There is no dowry. There's no formality. Uh, She's also, along with Romeo, Romeo will say at one point that, um, you know, call me but love and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. And baptism was the province of the church. And so you see these young, rebellious teenagers who believingly will kill for each other within days of meeting. And I think persuading students of the urgency and beauty of this story is the most important thing. So I'm not going to provide a thorough synopsis of this play, since this is one most people know, or at least kind of know. Short version, girl meets boy, girl and boy get married in secret because of their feuding families, then what could have been a rom-com turns into a tragedy when the boy's friend and the girl's cousin die, and that's kind of all the boy's fault. Girl and boy then each kill themselves. Feuding families decide to apparently reconcile, and that's the end. Alright, so a common question that comes up regarding Romeo is, how old is he? Shakespeare's text tells us exactly what Juliet's age is. She's 13 years old, nearly 14. But the text doesn't get specific on that for Romeo. What is your best guess, Courtney, for how old Romeo is? And why do you think Shakespeare wanted to tell us very specifically how old Juliet is, but not Romeo? Well, I think first we have to know about Juliet's age because 13 was actually not the age that most women married at. Yeah. Although her mother says many, many women have been made happy by early marriage before you, Juliet rejects this notion. She's only 13. She's turning 14 soon. Uh, Romeo, Romeo is less mature, but older. And I would place him as young as 16 and as old as 22, but closer to 20 because he still has to have that youthful naivete. That kind of um, awkwardness. I think Romeo is a pretty awkward character for much of the play, especially, you know, coded in his language. But he is too naive to be too much older than his teens. So I I like to see him in his teens. Um, But I think 16 would be the absolute youngest. I also asked Courtney why she thinks Shakespeare gave Juliet's parents bigger roles in the play than Romeo's parents. If you're struggling to remember what Romeo's mom, Lady Montague, is like, by the way, that's probably because she has only three lines in the entire play. I think probably because the rearing of girls and young women um, was far more consequential than the rearing of boys, who incidentally in England, the aristocratic boys would be sent to Italy to sow their wild oats before they came back to become proper. English gentlemen. So obviously Shakespeare said a lot of his plays in Italy, and this is one of the reasons. It was a sort of any anything goes type of environment. But Juliet's parents are very set in their ways, as most people were. And so greater insight into both of those figures tells us that there is more at stake for Juliet in this 
love in in her love for Romeo. So that's how things would have been for Juliet and Romeo facing prospects for marriage in the 16th century. Of course, this play can translate pretty well to later time periods. Bally's production at the RSC was set in modern day. The production was directed by Erica Wyman, who at the time was deputy artistic director of the RSC. You know, I've been fortunate to see a lot of modern day set Shakespeare productions and, you know, a lot of them feeling, you know, very fresh. But this production, Your Romeo and Juliet, really stands out in just how naturalistic the performances felt, how real, how contemporary it felt. So, yeah, I'm, I wonder if you can tell me any more about, you know, how you achieved that, how Erica Wyman might have led you guys through that or how... Um, maybe that just comes also from you relating to Romeo so quickly. I think we had, when I found out that I, you know, I was going to be Romeo, and we had initial conversations in London, actually, uh, before we'd even kind of got the wider cast or, or any of that. I think it was just, she asked me loads of questions. She was asking me, where do you, you know, where do you come from? Where, where, what's your background? What's your heritage? And and it was really informed a lot of that Romeo, specifically my character, but she did it to everyone's characters, I think. It, really came from us it really came from our lived in experiences and it uses a lot of our hearts it uses a lot of our influences for those characters and I think that's what like great productions do is like using sometimes you can put a a theme on top of something and try to go right this is where it's set it's set in modern London or whatever or where you know or wherever it is in, in the past or wherever but what really I think what good productions do is they kind of use the people that are in the shows to and that's what's yeah. so amazing about new versions of Shakespeare is that we're giving voices that are not normally necessarily heard or seen or people that mm-hmm. look like what Shakespeare actors should look like or what they sound like onto those stages and that's why I think especially with that production it felt so fresh and new and people hadn't really seen that before and um, people really related to it especially we were streaming that show into schools and I'd go into some of the schools, secondary schools, primary schools, even kids that, you know, we never looked at Shakespeare in primary school, but we were, I, was, I went into a year four class. And then year four, they're probably about eight, maybe seven. And and they're, they're talking to me about, and I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, I, I, we never grew up like that. I never grew up looking mm. at Shakespeare. It was, it was never a thing for me. So for them to feel like, they were getting represented in also some of the teachers saying, you know, some of the people in the class, especially in some of the areas where it was mostly majority South Asian pupils in Birmingham, they would come up to me and go, you're wrong. Like it's, it was, so, it was so impactful. And, and it just showed you that you can do it. It's, it's mm-hmm. doable and it's achievable and you just got to connect. And if we can all connect with it, it's, it's incredible. I'm curious, you know, what did it, take or what was your process for just um you know growing comfortable with working with Karen Fishwick you know this pair of roles where you know the audience needs to believe you guys are head over heels for each other and um there's all these very intimate moments what did it take or what was that process for kind of really finding that good working relationship with her you know she's amazing firstly really talented uh, uber talented performer um as well as musician as well she can play Mm. sing you know multifaceted um it was kind of a slow process because we got these parts you know we landed these parts we auditioned did a chemistry test with each other actually um she came to see Coriolanus then we went and just had a drink afterwards and and just spoke through some of the scenes that we were going to be um auditioning with and then I remember distinctly, and that was about two months, three months before we'd even start rehearsal, really. And then I remember distinctly, there was a we had to do a, the poster for the for the theatre piece, and it's just me. It was me, Karen, on the kind of a fire escape up at the top of a building, and they wanted to really shoot this, but it was November and it was really mm-hmm. cold. And they were like, mm-hmm. right, okay, so they got me and Karen up here. It was five o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. um, they wanted a sunrise coming up, you know, they were beautiful shot. They wanted it. And um, me and Karen were there in like, you know, so she's in a vest top and I'm in a, like a little t-shirt mm-hmm. and we're just shivering. We're, it was like, hi, Karen, nice to meet you again. Buddy. <laughs> nice to meet you. Buddy. And it was just that. And we were like, right, get close to each other, get close to each other. Okay. Now really intimate. Now be really intimate. And it was just kind of, you get, you know, kind of shouted loads of different things for about two hours, three hours on this top of this building. And so we kind of bonded over that session. But then, but then when we did get into rehearsals, it was very much led by 
our movement director as well as uh, Erica Aisha mm-hmm. Tashkara and she ended up um, we did a lot of sort of intimacy um, holding touching and without the text firstly um, proximity in the space you know how comfortable do you get with each other and is this okay is that okay is that touch yeah. okay so we did and that was I think before kind of intimacy coaches became quite a thing obviously in tv mm-hmm. and film now has become more prevalent but yeah, we we did all of those kind of exercises, and then it just happens over the the course of, I think the the whole year that we ended up doing this production for is just you know kind of slowly embedding bits and pieces and finding the comedy and really looking at each other and really sort of giving the other person the you know the attend like the attention as well, not just like mm-hmm. physically giving them the attention, but actually like really looking at them and and feeling open and responsive even though you're you know it's a matinee on you know and you've got about six you know 600 kids in and they go every single time you know you do a kiss or a touch or anything like that it's like really just focus on the other person so it was a slow (laughs) process but it was yeah I mean we're still friends now still really close friends now so I think it's yeah yeah it's nice in this play we get to hear some of Shakespeare's most beautiful love poetry well most of it's beautiful. Romeo does get better at expressing himself and weaving together beautiful poetry as the play goes on. What he starts off with when he's pining for Rosaline before he meets Juliet isn't all that great. He starts out as a very bad poet. (laughs) Very bad. You know, he's full of cliches and similes and metaphors, oxymorons, paradoxes, and they all sound highly artificial. He's using rhymed couplets. This is the most stilted form of language, unless you're Mm. Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. You don't speak in rhymed couplets. And Romeo Mm -hmm. is just really trapped in this idea of what poetry is. Yeah. Yeah. We'll leave that to like Puck and the sprightly characters. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But the more he gets to know Juliet, the more she draws him out. And he actually starts becoming a little bit looser and more relaxed in his language. Mm -hmm. And he begins to deconstruct these metaphors and similes by which he's lived up until this point as Romeo the the lover. And he becomes a real person uh, after he's been new baptized, uh, reborn by Juliet's love. And at the very end of the play, which I love, he actually deconstructs the sonnet form. and makes a blason of himself. And the blason was a key piece of the Petrarchan sonnet, right? It was uh, the part of the 14-line sonnet where the male lover, the writer, would bemoan the fact that he could not uh, capture his lady's heart. And as a result, he would anatomize her virtues. So her eyes are like stars, her lips are like roses, her teeth are like pearl. Mm-hmm. And this was a way of the poet flexing his muscles to divide and conquer the lady. In the end, Romeo is no longer reliant on these Petrarchan models and cliches. He actually says to himself, eyes, look your last. He says, arms, take your last embrace. Lips, oh ye the doors of breath. Um, uh, a deal with a righteous kiss, a dateless bargain to engrossing death. Here's to my love. And he has just anatomized himself uh, Mm. and deconstructed the idea of the lover, perhaps because he has nothing left to lose at this point. Romeo's poetry and language really starts to develop in the famous so-called balcony scene. Oh, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. And so here's another metaphor. But Romeo is moving away to something a little more abstract now. The idea that it's not just being in love with love, but Juliet is is the sun, the all-seeing figure who presides over his new world. And although he will lapse into uh, some pretty stultifying couplets at various points throughout the balcony scene. He he says things, he uses words like prorogued, you know, rather die here with you than have love prorogued. And so this is a word that's, that's very rarely used. Um, mm. And he would rather be involved with her right in this moment, uh, even if it means he dies at the hands of, of the Capulets 
after scaling the walls. So his language evolves until he gets back to Friar Lawrence. And without Juliet as that person who is convincing him to let go of his name, I think this is what's one of the most radical moments in, in the balcony scene is, again, mm. when she says, deny thy father and refuse thy name. For Romeo to do that, to say, henceforth, I never will be Romeo, is to really rock the world of the Elizabethan era because he denies the patriarchy mm. and enters into a kind of matriarchy with Juliet as the star, the sun, the guiding light. And that's a pretty subversive thing to do. Mm. So he shows, I think, a lot of growth in the balcony scene, but he's quick to revert and fall back on those rhyme couplets and cliches often when he's without her. The balcony scene as performed by Bally Gill and his castmate Karen Fishwick is swoon-worthy and giggle-inducing and just so real as it mines this scene between these two teens for every bit of earnestness and awkwardness. And Bally's Romeo is often believably aiming for bravura but then realizing he's been overconfident. The RSC put nearly the entirety of that scene in this production on YouTube. I encourage you to check it out there, or better yet, watch the recording of the whole production, which you can currently stream on the platform Marquee TV, or you can buy it on DVD. But let's listen to the first minute or so of that scene now. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green, and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. Hey, it is my lady. Ooh. <laughs> it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses. I will answer it. <laughs> I am too bold. <laughs> Tis not to me she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business, do entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand? <sighs> that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. I mean. She speaks, oh! <laughs> Speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night, being o'er my head as is a winged messenger of heaven, unto the white, upturned, wandering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze on him when he bestrides the lazy puffing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? I was petrified during the balcony scene. The, the opening, but soft white light through under window breaks. That, that speech, it still scares me now doing it, to be fair. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's because it is so um, exposing. You're speaking to yourself, you're speaking to the audience, it's you. Yeah. But I do, I, I remember it being on one of the um, drama schools. I think it was a drama It was a drama school speech that you had to learn for then you would go and audition for, for a London drama school. And I looked at it, I went, no, nope, not doing that. I didn't audition for that drama school because I'm not doing that. Wow. And then when I got the part, I, I, I knew, I looked, I was like, this one is the one that ended up being actually one of my strongest things. Um in the end and you know you'd say the laughs the o's there's a lot of oh you know and 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 i think that's what scared me but it was just finding a version of it and that took a bit of time i'll be honest with you that took that took mm -hmm. a bit of time a lot of just me and erica or whoever it was just in that opening bit and then to have karen there and then to and for it to you know with julia and and yeah we, we got loads more i didn't realize how i didn't realize you could do it like that all the versions i had seen or Heard. I actually went to have a look at the Baz, Baz Lerman version to see how, you know, how Leo DiCaprio does it. And they've cut that all that section out. So I went, oh, great. Can't, 
can't yeah. nick any of this now <laughs> yeah. uh, right yeah. okay I'm gonna have to actually think about how to do this um yeah but I did I really enjoyed it I re- it ended up being quite strong and and, and being and that's it about being I suppose brave and being really bold in in the mm-hmm. version and being really truthful and it was really truthful I think that's I think that's how he would react I think that's how I would react um so yeah and being being courageous enough to go okay it's big and it's going to be big so just lean into it just lean yeah. into it as much as you can me and Karen we did um we did the balcony scene a year later so we had done the show for about a year and three months between 2018 to 2019 then we did then we did it just the scene just the falling in love balcony non-balcony scene and it we definitely felt we were looking at each other. We just felt like a certain so much life had kind of happened in that time. Um, especially for me, it was going through a breakup and things, and in my private life, and and just that the the impulses weren't quite there for me. And I just mm. and that was a year. What was the context or the purpose when you performed the balcony scene again? It was Chinese New Year okay. uh, in London. And so we had performers from China, which were incredible, you know, very physical movement uh, performers, um, dance troops and singers. And, and and then they were doing a version of Romeo and Juliet, but they had their performers and then we would come in and do our version of it. But taking that one scene out of context was, you know, without the build-up, because you need, I think you need to do the play. You really do mm. need to do the whole thing and the fights, the love, the all of the other scenes, the palm to palm. You need all of that to then do balcony scene, but doing it sort of kind of in in isolation was quite, it was quite tricky. But I think, I, I didn't realise the way that we had set that Romeo and Juliet, where the way we had set that show was was energy and pace like energy and pace mm-hmm. and if these characters have too much time to think they wouldn't do half the things they do you know they wouldn't yeah. you know I wouldn't kill Tibar wouldn't you know if I just thought about it and thought about wait a minute am I doing the right thing is this the right you know I think that was something that people ask me when they're doing Romeo or they're doing the play you've got to remember that you know they're young impulsive it's hot and everything is big just everything is like big and you have to just go with it otherwise you can kind of hide into hide into it and hide into the emotion of how big it is because it is it is really big and the imagery is really massive talking about moon stars sun he just can only picture it out there the language is so big and the images are so big that's the only way he can communicate um so you need a lot of the build-up <laughs> so maybe me and Karen were feeling oh maybe maybe we could have just done maybe a couple of scenes before and then got into that but... as your warm-up backstage yeah. or whatever but yeah Sally mentioned imagery with the stars the moon the sun it's cosmic for these star-crossed lovers all about what's faded in the stars Well, I think that one of the things that students really appreciate about this sense of the play being a foregone conclusion is the fact that Romeo is afflicted with foreknowledge. He refers to his world-weary flesh at the end, and that's so tragic because a 16, 20-year-old, whatever he is, he shouldn't have world-wearied flesh, but he's inherited this intergenerational trauma of the feud, of war, of bad fathers, um, and he knows that he can't shake this yoke of predetermination off his shoulders. He, he has this intense foreknowledge. And it's just before the Capulet ball when they say, come on, come on, we're going we're gonna to be too late. And he says, I fear too early for my mind misgives, right? Some uh, ill consequence yet hanging in the stars shall begin its fearful date with this night's revel, something to that effect. Yeah. And he knows it. He just, he can see it. And the other sense is, to me, Romeo has this almost proleptic awareness that he is already dead in the play. He knows mm-hmm. somehow that he is a constellation. He can almost see himself in the sky already. And that's why he's so tired. Um, he knows how it ends. And yet we continue to see this play. We watch it on film. We read it because we think each time we come to this text, it's going to be different. It's really yeah. going to change, yeah. you know, just this once. Um, so I, I think the, the sense of everything hanging in the stars, astrological determinism was something that was very dominant in, in Shakespeare's universe. Um, mm. The belief that the stars do 
chart the courses of our lives. Um, and the fact that Juliet compares Romeo to little stars and cutting him out into a constellation, it's mm -hmm. really uncanny and, and unnerving, I think. Mm. Um, so Romeo is encumbered very early on by this sense of I'm already doomed. And what's beautiful about it is he just carries forth. He's all in. Yeah. You know, he's, it's really an interesting character that way. The opening lines of Romeo and Juliet tell us that the Capulets and Montagues are alike in dignity, and that there's this ancient grudge between the two families. There's more in the podcast Juliet episode digging into the implications of the alike in dignity part, but let's now look at what it really means for Juliet and for Romeo that their families have been in this ongoing feud. Trauma is a, a prime mover of Romeo and Juliet when we really think about it. These two young kids have inherited a war, a war they don't understand, hmm. a war that everybody is sick and tired of in Verona, and a war that ultimately separates them. And growing up in wartime, as it were, is certainly a tremendous source of trauma. I think that, and it is absolutely generational, intergenerational, but I think that Juliet is the one who by far suffers the most trauma because she is, she's not helpless as a character, but she's helpless in the terms of the play and the mm. society in which she lived and the household that she occupies. She is the one who is bartered, you know, out, uh, auctioned, if you will by her father. Yeah. She is the one who is abused by her father when she resists being forsworn and marrying Paris after she's married Romeo. The stakes of this situation for Juliet are so high. She is literally a ruined woman, which is an unfortunate way of putting it, but that would have been the phrasing. She was a yeah. ruined woman. She, was, she had already uh, lost her virginity and therefore, um, she was uh, technically considered a kind of whore. She's the one who really lives all the tragic implications of Romeo and Juliet. Whereas Romeo, also brilliantly, beautifully in love, becomes a very strong character, um, still is a male. He's still a man, and he still can be somewhat self-determining. And Juliet, for being self-determining, that's why she has to die. And if not, she goes to a nunnery slash whorehouse yeah. to spend yeah. her days. So I think that that generational trauma is in the blood of the characters when they're born in Shakespeare's play. I asked Bally if Erica Wyman or other members of the cast and creative team discussed what the cause of the feud between the two families might have been in their production. I'm sure that Erica did speak to the rest of the castmates okay. that were in about the ancient grudge, but I can't remember exactly what you know what the cause of that was. Okay. Um, but for me personally, I think it it definitely sort of conflict in terms of like two between two people you know whether that's religion or cultures or anything like that it's definitely something that I kind of can connect with I suppose I mean you know it's you know without getting too deep into it you know we're from a Punjabi Sikh background and in tradition in India you know what happened with Britain taking over leaving leaving it, it, it ended up being quite sort of fractured and people didn't particularly like to certain groups of people certain religious groups of people yeah. or culturally and that kind of stemmed all the way down actually through generational shifts um so in, especially in Coventry or certain places or Birmingham you do have those sorts of conflict unfortunately between two groups yeah. of people or two religions or two cultures of people so it wasn't I don't think it for me it was quite as hard to imagine why these two bunch of people don't like each other for some reason you kind of i use my imagination for that for that bit um but yeah i don't remember specifically in the show or erica saying something about why 
I'm sure she'll ring me up afterwards after hearing this and go, Bali, you yeah. didn't, yeah, I, I, we did three days on, we, we did three days in a workshop on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know, I forgot. Though there's this ongoing feud between the Montagues and the Capulets, and each family seems to kind of keep to themselves, Montagues hanging out with their Montague cousins and such, Romeo has one dear friend who is a member of neither family, Mercutio. In this production at the RSC, Mercutio was played by Charlie Josephine, who is an actor, writer, and director, and also has some background in boxing. Charlie's Mercutio presented as a woman, with the pronouns in the text being changed from he to she for the character, and Charlie saying lines like, ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave woman. They are incredible at, at, at what they do, and very physical, very, very sort of driven, and the energy that that Mercutio gives to Romeo anyway is really sort of what is portrayed as and what it's seen as is quite sort of sort of fluid and like loose and I think that that's what something that we wanted Charlie well, well I think Erica wanted to feel like she's empowered by these like I'm I'm better than the men I am better and I can fight and I can fight better and that shows through Tybalt and that you know kind of conflict between those two characters um and and yeah, it just gave me something. I ended up being, I don't know what people thought or what you think, but I ended up being quite sort of annoyed by her <laughs> more than anything. You know, when she's trying to bring me into the into the party or whether she I'm like, just stop, like stop it. And you know, as someone who doesn't like conflict or didn't uh, that character doesn't want conflict, Romeo's character doesn't want conflict to have Mercutio's character who is like antagonistic in every different way yeah. was something that was quite beautiful to play and now that's the version for me I'm just going that's the version but I didn't know that that could be a version mm. and that's what's beautiful about it, is to get people who normally wouldn't necessarily I think that's the most exciting bit about it, is to get people that you wouldn't expect to be in those roles or you've not seen in those roles and then to find out oh okay cool they that that's a version that's another version and it, and equally yeah. i mean i know people you know i think we got a lot of stick for that um in terms of reviews and things and yeah. you used to get we get we got a lot of stick we got a lot of stick for loads of stuff um so <laughs> i think people are like oh these millennials uh they're you know and I'm going, well you know i think it's you you can all you can always go back and do the other version i mean yeah. it's not like we yeah. can't you can go back you watch the stuff that's on dvd like it's there it's not going away it's not going away and 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 you it takes someone really special to be brave to go look we're gonna at certain institutions to go look this is the way it's done but we're gonna do this and we're gonna put all the energy and all the sort of resources and the money into doing something that's that's different and hasn't been done before and then we you know then to get all of the sort of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't i suppose but but um yeah, I think it was, I just think it was a beautiful, and what Charlie did with it was absolutely beautiful. I want to hear what stands out in your memory from working on the fight choreography for mm. Mercutio and Tybalt's deaths. Um, you know, that's, yeah. that's one of those moments where, you know, people who know the play know exactly, you know, how those characters die and that it's got to be very specific, you know, the knife or the weapon or whatever it is under the arm. So, um, yeah, just tell me about figuring that out, working with, I assume, a fight choreographer for that. I remember kind of talking through uh, bits of choreography and fight choreographer. Um, and yeah, I just, I just, I, I wanted to have the big, long fight sequences. I just remember, I was like, right, I want to have the big, long fight sequence. And they, I remember them turning to me, fight choreographer, and other people were telling me, they were like, no, I think the big fight sequences are the ones with Benvolio was involved at the beginning with, with Tybalt, Mercutio. And I, they said, I think you should be just really quick, like really, really quick. And I go, oh, OK, OK. It's really impulsive and really sort of brute strength sort of thing. And I, and I was like, oh, OK, because I was hoping, you know, to get a bit more rapier dagger, a bit more. So yeah. like, no, we don't want any of that. We don't need any of that because we're going to get that from everyone else. I was like, oh, OK. As Bally mentioned, Romeo doesn't really want conflict. Romeo is less inclined than other characters are to get involved in the brawls between the Capulets and the Montagues. But he ends up being the only character who kills twice. Three times if we're considering his suicide, too. But he kills two other people, Tybalt and Paris. No other character does that during the events of this play in the text. 
Sophie Duncan pointed that out to me when I interviewed her for the Juliet episode. Let's hear what Courtney had to say about this. I think the fact that Romeo kills twice actually shows, it shows us two things. It shows, one, his depth of character, what he's capable of. Mm. We only see him enraged a few times in the play. And he, it's as if he conjures it when he kills Paris. Because he says, tempt not a desperate man. And Paris is there wanting to make a citizen's arrest. And Romeo is pushed to the brink. And he kills him in cold blood. And then he apologizes when Paris is dead and, and realizes that Paris is foredoomed too because he says, one writ with me in Sour Misfortune's book. Mm. So there's a sense in which Paris is part of the conspiracy, if you will, in Romeo and Juliet to prevent Romeo and Juliet from changing their own ending. And it's surprising because I hadn't thought of it as Romeo killing twice. The second time is absolutely in cold blood. And I guess the thing is that we, we tend to forgive him. We, we forget that Paris is murdered and that he's yeah. a young man too. And yeah. e even Sometimes though Sometimes that's even cut, like for time yeah. or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, but he recognizes him as a brother who mm -hmm. loved Juliet too. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps in that way, he's such a foil to Romeo that he cannot live while Romeo does. Let's hear more from Bally about Romeo being, or trying to be, more a lover than a fighter. Earlier on, they wanted me to have a, a knife on me in a sheath and to have a knife constantly. And I think, I, I said to Eric, I said, I, I don't want him to, this guy does not want to have, he, he does not want war. He doesn't want, he's sick of it. He doesn't want it. He, he sees no point in it. He doesn't understand the conflict. I don't think he should have a knife on him. And I don't know if people picked up on this. I don't think they did. But the knife that he uses to kill Tybalt is Tybalt's knife. Romeo then gets banished. He keeps the knife, the Tybalt knife. He takes it with him. It's kind of simple, mm. symbolism of, mm -hmm. of him taking this, this thing that he had taken from someone else, life, whatever. And then he's comes back on and he kills Paris with the same knife. And I just thought it was quite beautiful of something that, you know, he didn't really, you know, he doesn't really want the conflict, but it just seems to find, it just seems to find him as well. Yeah. It just seems to be in part of it. But yeah, in terms of like the, the conflict and, and the knife, and we used a lot of knife, you know, a lot of people can do, there's different versions of that. People, people have used guns, especially Baz Luhrmann's version yeah. of used guns. Mm -hmm. But I think the knife thing was quite, quite prevalent and quite real for us to, to use that version of it as well. At the time this production was staged in 2018, knife crime had been rising at an alarming rate in England. In the U.S., gun violence is a pervasive problem, some experts call it an epidemic, but in the U.K., particularly in cities like London and Birmingham then, it was knife violence that was a big issue, with far too many victims. In 2017, there had been a 50% increase in just two years in the number of knife offenses in England and Wales. As was pointed out in the program for this production, this kind of violence in the streets was also a problem in Shakespeare's time. A year before Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, his contemporary Christopher Marlowe died in a knife attack in a tavern brawl. Here's Courtney with some background on the state of things with duels and brawls in Elizabethan England. The difference between fencing and swordsmanship that's occurring right when Romeo and Juliet is being performed is the, um, the introduction of the rapier. And the rapier is a thinner, double-edged sword. It's lighter. It can be very quickly unsheathed. Mm. And uh, it is meant not for large slashing, blows but for jabs and it has an elaborate handguard so you can get right up close to your enemy and if you're if you're good enough you keep thrusting and your hand doesn't get cut and of course you're able to parry perhaps with your dagger or with the rapier the other combatants moves but the the rapier was a game changer for England it was it was new 
um, in Italy, it had existed for a long time. And, and what's happening in England in 1595 is that Vincentio Saviolo has just released his uh, fencing manual. And it is filled not only with mechanics, but really inflected with the idea of honor accompanying the footwork, the handwork, the swordsmanship. And so the rapier becomes a kind of fashion statement, mm. um, but it also becomes a kind of um, importuning to fight because it's always exposed. It's always there. And it's very quick at the ready. You can grab that rapier and change the story in a second. Um, so I think the, the introduction of the rapier, the popularity of Vincentio Saviolo's fencing manual, all the rhetoric that came out of that, that Mercutio uh, just absolutely taunts Tybalt with, it was all very fashionable, but it was all very, very deadly. Juliet is lying in the Capulet's tomb, seemingly dead, but at this point just made to appear dead by Friar Lawrence's potion. Romeo returns to Verona where he's been banished from, and he approaches the tomb, but Paris, the man who Juliet's parents intended for her to marry, tries to stop him. They fight. Desperate to make his way into the tomb, Romeo kills Paris. In the R.C. production, Bally's Romeo then says his last words to his beloved wife, not noticing that the right arm and fingers of Karen's Juliet are just starting to move, Romeo holds the vial of poison in front of him, takes just a moment to psych himself up into drinking it. Then he downs the poison and dies just too late to see Juliet waking up. We, we had a version of it, which was kind of, we didn't want, I don't know if he wants to do it. He has to psych him, like you said, we have to psych himself up to drink the poison. And I was between Karen and, and Erica kind of going, right, could we in that pacing of that, of him psyching himself up, saying the last line to have the hand come up. And yeah. if you just waited maybe 10 seconds, maybe five, 10 seconds, it's so close. I remember that being quite a, a scene that we took a lot of time. We had a lot of moving parts as well. We had um, on the deck, on the bottom, we had the ghosts of all the people that had yeah. were in this play as well, uh -huh. um, kind of weave into it as well so we you know to symbolize who had been lost as well so you've got these young two young lovers but also this generation of people that have died as well i think that was something that took a long time to really find all of those moments um mm -hmm. but yeah i think it was quite if you just i think the key thing is if you just wait if you just waited right. five ten seconds it could have it could have all been different mm -hmm. um but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um kind of one, I guess, more practical element of acting what I care about, having to play dead um, for, <laughs> you know, I think it ends up being like five minutes or something um, yeah. for you. Uh, it could have been longer if you and Juliet hadn't you know, joined the ghosts and stood up, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, asking this as a non-actor myself, how do you, what's the trick to being you know, believably I, I... dead? for five minutes or more <laughs> you know what it's tricky it, it, it is tricky I've not done too many but I got really versed in dying and staying dead uh, during Romeo and Juliet what the problem was for me was because I had psyched myself up with the fight downstairs with Paris my I was breathing so heavily and I was kind of going right just take a deep breath in. I'll take a deep breath in and then let release really slowly but whilst someone else is speaking then it's better because obviously you're then looking over at the other people but I think that's the other thing is to find a comfortable position mm. and breathe and really breathe deeply but really slowly and unnoticeably don't let the diaphragm go crazy I think that's, yeah that's yeah. Like, that's my advice to any actor who's playing you know dead on stage is to just yeah breathe deep, like really shallowly yeah got it that's the trick okay um yeah that's one of those this play in that moment you hear horror stories from high school productions about like Romeo was drooling on Juliet <laughs> like, like so, it's all like blood everywhere the blood was all over it's, you know it's all over and it, me I didn't have to have the blood but with, with Karen she had the blood and then it would go all over my costume and all over her and you know we'd get up and we'd be all sticky and stuff like that but it would you know it's all part of the it's all part of show business I suppose it's all mm -hmm. part of the um the the the, the image the 
yeah yeah and then that blood washes right out side note i for literally my last night in stratford before i moved back to the states i saw tamberlane oh um, yeah in the oh. in the second row i did get blood splattered <laughs> on me a little a little bit and i was impressed with how quickly it washed out with water so it is that is a genius from the you know from the the makeup and technology like honestly they you can get covered absolutely covered in it and there was a there was another production tumbling was another one but it was another duchess of malfi that was a duchess of malfi and so the... much blood the stage was covered and i think they had to put a disclaimer for like row from row a to h you might get splashed and i saw when the the version i saw was two like three students were on the site and they were all in white and the whole production at the end they weren't covered like you know i think they'd gotten the blood white on this night and then one of the actors when they were doing the bows they went oh forget it and they just like grabbed a horn threw it onto them which they were loving oh my gosh because they were fully expecting you know to uh to be covered in blood but yeah i we we didn't have anything like that we we just yeah. had a little little pocket you know those little yeah. pocket, blood, blood right. pocket bags. I, that, to be fair i there was a lot of me handing things to the people for blood uh-huh. blood um what they call those blood uh, bags blood bags oh gosh i'm blanking on the name for it too jumping in here to say i think the word bally and i were both trying to remember was squib squib that refers to the whole mechanism of the special effect of a wound though not just to a bag of fake blood but yeah i was i was all it was all sort of sleight of hand i'd have one give it to them when they're fighting you get you know i ended up being that so i didn't get the big yeah. fight sequences and i ended up being a courier for half of them I don't know. yeah yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> courier for the blood that's great courier for the blood yeah so courtney mentioned earlier that juliet is really more of a badass than romeo is let's address that over on the podcast episode about Juliet, you can hear all about what makes Juliet extraordinary. Romeo, okay, this guy, yes, does come across fickle for being all into Rosaline and then two seconds later falling head over heels for another girl. He's got some not great moments like when he's in the fetal position in Friar Lawrence's cell moaning about how he's been banished, uh, kind of ungratefully saying that's worse than being sentenced to death. And there are some adaptations or reinventions of Romeo and Juliet that really lean into the idea of Romeo not being that impressive of a guy. The very fun and delightful musical called And Juliet, without spoiling when or how Romeo makes an appearance in that show, I'll tell you it depicts Romeo as kind of a bimbo, or I guess that would be a himbo. He says things like, it's super dope, in response to a big life event. And he says, herefore art thou Romeo, which is hilariously just all levels of nonsensical and grammatically incorrect. And Juliet finds out shortly into the show, while singing Backstreet Boys, Show Me the Meaning of Being Lonely, that Romeo apparently had a bunch of other lovers before her. And there was also a fun movie that came out in 2022 called Rosaline, which focused more on the young woman Romeo was pining for right before he met Juliet. The cast includes Caitlin Dever as Rosaline and Minnie Driver as Rosaline's nurse. It's been a while since I've, I've seen this, but um, as I recall, what I like about it is that Romeo is a poet and he's a bad poet mm-hmm. and He's writing both to Juliet and Rosaline at the same time. Yeah. And, yeah. and saying the same things, right? Saying the yeah. same exact yeah. things. And uh, as a result, Juliet and, and Rosaline form this kind of friendship, um, a kind of solidarity. But Romeo is, he's not much of a character. He's not a catch. Yeah. No. Not a catch. <laughs> um, and yeah. so I like the way this film, this adaptation spinoff, really flips the script and um, teaches Romeo a lesson or two Mm -hmm. uh, about how to behave in love, how not to write, how not to woo. Um, And he doesn't undergo the kind of character development that we see in, um, in the play, of course. Um, So he's, he's more of a um, stock figure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not not his story in that one. No, not <laughs> his yeah, story. Yeah. And that's what makes it such a great and, and, you know, subversive film in its own way. So Romeo is the butt of jokes in those adaptations. But like Courtney said, in Shakespeare's play, Romeo goes through more character development. 
Of course, though, he doesn't get to apply what he's learned and what he's gone through because he and Juliet tragically die young. That leads us to a major what-if question. So, Courtney, I want to hear, do you think if Romeo and Juliet had lived, if they didn't have a tragic ending or uh, if they didn't have a tragic ending so soon into their relationship, do you think they would have lasted as a couple? Mm. Yeah, wonderful question, and and one we'll never know, of course. <laughs> um, but yes, I do. Uh, I think the fact that they were willing to die for each other, and and not even being rash. No, Romeo and Juliet are are rash acting after Romeo has been banished. But when they're in their final scenes, they are very collected, very self aware, very mature, and. I believe that kind of commitment to each other and momentum would carry them through any rough times Mm. that were to come. Um, So I really do believe that they would have worked out. I do believe they are in love. And I think that in some ways, uh, Othello begs the same question. They they are a grown-up Romeo and Juliet who defy all kinds of cultural expectations to be together. So I kind of see Othello and Desdemona as a grown-up version of Romeo and Juliet. And then you have, in the end, Antony and Cleopatra being a very uh, callous representation of of love. Um, But that also culminates in an incredible incredible death scene um, for Cleopatra. So less so for Mark Antony, who can't can't fall on his own sword. But but yeah, I I strongly believe in, in the two of them. As a couple, I really do. So, yeah, even amid the absurdity of marrying someone one day after you've met them, which maybe we can blame in part on the situation the family's feuding put them in, even amid that, we can find self-awareness and maturity in Romeo and in Juliet. Alas, only in adaptations and reinventions do Romeo and Juliet get to live happily ever after. It is, as we know from the beginning of the play in the prologue, it is not to be for them in Shakespeare's play. But you know, on that note, I want to share an experience I had in Stratford while Bally's Romeo and Juliet production was running. This was during my year living there while earning my master's degree. Just down the road from the Royal Shakespeare Company's theaters, there's a pub where RC actors often hang out after performances. Or at least they did pre-pandemic, I'm not sure what it's like there now. I had just watched that very, very bloody production of John Webster's Duchess of Malfi that you heard Bally and me talking about. By the way, that show was so good that I saw it four times. Saw it that particular night with a friend visiting from L.A., Chris Weller, actually, whom podcast listeners know as the creator of the awesome Andy Warhol-inspired art for the podcast. Chris and I went to this pub after Duchess of Malfi, and when we were about to head out, On the front patio were a bunch of actors who were in the current RSC shows, all in a lively chat, looking like they were having a fabulous time together, which was just a striking image because it was these people I'd seen play characters in a few dark plays. If I recall correctly, it was the actors who were playing the Duchess from Duchess of Malfi, Mercutio, Benvolio, Macbeth, so mostly characters that die in these plays. It was like these people in these tragedies had found each other in the afterlife. And the afterlife for them was this charming pub in Stratford-upon-Avon. As we near the end of this episode, let's hear Bally's advice for any actor taking on the role of Romeo. I think it's just be yourself, be your authentic self. Use your own voice, use your own movement, use your own, the way you stand, the way you, I think that's the most interesting thing about it and be very truthful to to who you are, like, you know, to your experiences. And um, I think a lot of productions sometimes put a version or a concept on top of the the piece before they've even explored what that is. You know, I think the rehearsal process is about trying to figure out what version you have got rather than, selling goal we're set it in you know in wherever and it's at this time in this period it's like that's that's great and aesthetically that looks really nice as well but I think for the actors it's it's about you trying to figure out what are these massive feelings you know using the language to ultimately decide that as well um 
the rhetoric around it as well. So that's really important. Um, but just to have fun, just to have fun. It, it's a great play, and it's a it's real. It's tough. It's hard. Yeah, I just think just have fun with it and try things. Just try things out, and the things that you're scared of, be scared of them, but lean into it. Just lean into it, and and the audience will go with you. Many thanks to this episode's guests, Bally Gill and Dr. Courtney Lehman. Original music for the podcast is by Daryl Chadwick. Art is by Chris Weller. Interview conducting and script crafting. And in this episode, audio editing by yours truly, Emily Rome. For more from Courtney about this play, you can check out her book titled Screen Adaptations, Romeo and Juliet, A Close Study of the Relationship Between Text and Film. And she's currently working on a book about film versions of Shakespeare directed by women. For folks in or near the UK, you can see Bally back on the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in A Midsummer Night's Dream through March 30th. As this episode is wrapping up, if you're thinking, oh, I wanted to hear more about the Capulet's Ball or about the duels with Tybalt and Mercutio, well, I didn't cover every moment of Romeo's story in depth here, but you can hear about those scenes and more in the previously released episodes devoted to Juliet and to Mercutio. I encourage you to check out those episodes if you haven't yet. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider giving the podcast a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform of your choice. Positive reviews from listeners like you can help other folks discover the podcast. Thanks to each and every one of the pod's listeners for tuning in. Until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>